Uh, tonight, Catholic Church and Safeguarding the Truth. So this document that I'm going to quote from quite a bit that's actually on your paperwork comes from the Second Vatican Council, uh, uh, Vatican II. Uh, it's one of the four dogmatic constitutions. There's uh, Lumen Gentium, which is the one I'm going to quote tonight, what the church says about herself. Then you've got uh, Gaudium et Spes, what the church says to the world. There's Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is the one on the liturgy. And then there's De Verbum, and that's the one that's on the scriptures. So those are the four major constitutions. So tonight, when you see Lumen Gentium in, in your notes, that's what I'm quoting for. It's one of the four major constitutions uh, from the Second Vatican Council. So it says, Christ is the light of nations, because this is so, the sacred synod gathered together in the Holy Spirit eagerly desires by proclaiming the gospel to every creature to bring the light of Christ to all men, a light brightly visible on the countenance of the church. Lumen Gentium, uh, number one. It's paragraph number one. It's literally the first opening sentences from that, from that document. So when we think of the word church, I think, imagine certain words probably come into mind. Um, whoop, let's turn this on. And um, so when we think of the word, like we think of the word in the scriptures, um, if so, how is it mentioned? So we, we have the universal church in Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Uh, then we see the particular church in Matthew 18, uh, Matthew 18, 17 and 18. If he refuses to listen to the church, uh, that's the particular church. So you've got the universal church, which is the large church that uh, uh, Christ established upon Peter, and then you've got the particular church. Now, these terms, when you see them in documents, uh, when you read them, universal in particular, I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail exactly what they mean in a little bit. Uh, and then we also have from St. Paul's writings, 1 Timothy 3.15, he mentions the church is the pillar and foundation of truth, uh, which again has to do with the universal church. And the terms uh, that we see in regards to uh, uh, the church are, um, we see the Latin is ecclesia, um, and the Greek is ecclesia, and then the Hebrew actually, which means assembly, is kahal. So like when you see in the Old Testament, when the Hebrews gather as an assembly, when they gather around the tabernacle, when they gather around the Ark of the Covenant. They gather as an assembly. So if you, these words all kohal in Hebrew, and then ecclesia, and then ecclesia. So, and then that's where we get the word, that the, the English word is, um, is church. Um, the understanding, the big, so like tonight we're going to go over Catholicism, the Catholic Church as a whole. When you study theology, the, the, big, the big theological term is um, ecclesiology, is essentially the study of the church. That's the big theological term. So the church is the sacrament of salvation. Lumen Gentium number one says, Since the church in Christ is in the nature of sacrament, sign and instrument, that is of communion with God and of unity among all men, she here proposes for the benefit of the faithful and of the whole world to set forth as clearly as possible and in the tradition laid down by earlier councils, her own nature and universal mission. So that's, that's another part of Lumen Gentium 
paragraph uh, one. That is essentially the mission of Lumen Gentium. That's the mission of the entire document, is that quote right there. The church is both the sign and the means of salvation to the world. Now, when you think about this, when you think about the church as Catholics, we think about the church as being united to Jesus Christ. Uh, you can't separate the two. Uh, they are one and the same. It's Christ and his church. And the church is both sign and the means of salvation to the world. So what does, uh, what does authority mean to you? Well, Christ gave the church a hierarchical authority to teach, rule, and sanctify all members. Authority is not power, but right such as the author's rights. So that's where the word authority comes from, the author's rights. The church only has authority because she's under the authority of her author and Lord, Jesus Christ. The authority of the church is not control or arrogance, but humility, Christ as origin, and for us to, and for us to uh, serve Christ. So this understanding, so I really, it's hard if, if you've been taught that the Catholic Church uh, is certain things um, in, in your past. Um, even in my own past, growing up Catholic, I was taught the church was certain things, which it is not. You got to kind of tonight, like Alita said, be open to this and be open to understanding what the church truly teaches and what she truly is. Um, and because I think there's a, I think for some of us, we might have a false notion or we've been poorly catechized or we've just been given false, false teachings of what the church truly is. So for us tonight, you got to kind of keep that in mind. So this understanding of authority, the only reason the popes have the authority to teach what they teach is because Christ is the author of the, like I said, the author's rights, the author of the Lord. We're called as Christians to be obedient to this authority. St. Teresa of Calcutta, otherwise known as Mother Teresa, said, God did not put me on earth to be successful, but he put me here to be faithful. The bishops, led by the Pope, exercise a servant leadership with the help of the priests and deacons. They are there to serve. Um, now, throughout the history of the church, some of them have taken that liberty and have not served, uh, but that's what they are there for. They are there as servant leaders. I think Jesus Christ uh, at the um, Last Supper, what's he do with the apostles washing their feet? He serves them as their king. Okay, so the church. The church does three things. Teaches, rules, and sanctifies. Let's first go over teaching. Teaches refers, teaching refers to the magisterium. The magisterium is the official teaching office of the church. It's made up of the pope and the bishops together. Uh, the, church teaches on all on, the church teaches on all matters of faith and morals through both the natural law and revealed law. So the natural law, I'll actually be back with you guys in February to talk about the natural law. But the natural law essentially is the law that's written on our very hearts. Uh, the Ten Commandments are kind of the concrete writ, kind of, kind of the, the concrete form of the natural law. But it's, that's kind of where, they, where the natural law begins. It's, it's, it's voiding good, doing, uh, doing good and avoiding uh, good, listen to me. Doing good and avoiding evil. Uh, and that's really the natural law. And then the revealed law is that law that comes through scripture and tradition. 
The office of the magisterium is exercised ordinarily when a pope or bishop issues a letter or gives public teaching to instruct, help, and guide the faithful in matters of faith and morals. So when uh, Bishop Olmsted wrote his Into the Breach, which was written to all Catholic men, uh, that's the exercise of the magisterium. Uh, he serves as part of the magisterium when he writes that letter. Although these teachings may not be infallible, and we'll get to infallibility soon, the faithful are still obligated to believe such teachings at the level of religious assent as a sign of obedience to Christ's church and respect for the authority for the power of the keys given to Peter and passed on to him. So when it comes to certain teachings, so we're, we're obedient to believe teachings on faith and morals. Um, People have, you know, when, when uh, what was one of the things he talked about? Like Pope Francis talked about one of his documents, like recycling and certain, certain teachings about the environment. Uh, those, that doesn't necessarily have to do with faith and morals. So we aren't necessarily prone. We don't have to believe everything. But if, uh, if it has to do with faith and morals, then we are obedient and bound to believe such things, such teachings. So the other part is rules, and ruling, how, how does the church rule? It's the, the term is governing, the church governs or rules. Through the authority of the keys given to St. Peter, the pope and the bishops have the authority to rule or govern the church, as in the day-to-day -day activities of the church. And this is where you see the particular church and the universal church acting together. So the particular church, remember I used that term from Matthew 18, the particular church has to do with a local diocese. That's what, when you see, if you ever read a document, you say, the, you see particular church, that's what it's referring to, is the specific diocese or eparchy. Eparchy is a term for the eastern region of churches that are in the, the eastern rite. So our diocese of Phoenix makes up, of, you know, there's like 95 parishes, I think, in the diocese of Phoenix and certain missions. That's our diocese. And eparchy, the eastern churches, they might be, there might be one, there might be two or three in Phoenix, a couple in Tucson, one in Santa Barbara, one in San Diego, LA County. And so it's a bigger region. It's called an eparchy because the eastern churches, the eastern side of the church is much smaller than the Latin rite, this, which is what we're part of. We're part of the western rite or the Latin rite. And then you also have the eastern rite of the church as well. So that's the particular church is the diocese, not the particular parish. The particular church is the diocese. And then the universal church is Rome. Okay, what happens in Vatican, what happens in the Vatican, but also what happens when all those particular churches come together, that's also the universal church. So when you go to, you go to like a World Youth Day event, you see the universal church because you see, you see people from all nations speaking all different languages. The first time I ever experienced it was in Denver, uh, 1993, when John Paul II came here. You First time I ever really experienced the universal church, I'm in my own country, in Denver, Colorado, on a bus, and there's, ten, you know, there's like six or seven different languages going around you. You hear English, but you're hearing Italian, you're hearing Spanish, you're hearing Portuguese and Japanese, and you hear all these different languages. That's the, the beauty of the universal church. So the universal church is all those particular churches together, but also what happens in, in Rome as well. And then the last part of the church, what she does is that she sanctifies. 
Through sanctifying, the bishop is the steward of the grace of supreme priesthood, especially the Holy Eucharist, which he offers personally and whose offering he assures through his priests, who are his co-workers. The Eucharist is the center of the particular church. The bishops and the priests sanctify or make holy the church by their prayer and work, by their ministry of the word and of the sacraments. So it's 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 so the bishops primarily the bishop in our diocese our ordinary our bishop he teaches he rules governs and he sanctifies but he does all of this through his co-workers through his through his through the priests so when father will preaches he's doing that by the authority given to him by the bishop to do so it's not like he does it on his own um he, it's, always, it's only through the authority of the bishop that he's able to teach, govern, and sanctify. All three of these are exercised by the magisterium, which has the final say on all things. So the magisterium is the one that kind of puts the, puts the, I don't want to say hammer down, but essentially that's what it does. It has the final teaching on all things. Um, as Catholics, we don't line up behind one theologian or another. So as a Catholic, I wouldn't line up behind Aquinas. Um, let, me say, let, me, uh, let, me say, let me say it this way. I wouldn't line up behind Bonaventure, and Father Will wouldn't line up behind uh, Aquinas. Okay, Bonaventure, St. Bonaventure is a Franciscan theologian. Uh, we don't line up. Now, a lot of friends of mine that uh, were Protestant at one time in their life, um, they say they either line up behind Luther or they line up behind Calvin. Whatever Calvin teaches is what they believed, or whatever Lutheran taught is what they believed. But see, the magisterium is different. The church is different. We draw from everybody. We don't just draw from Aquinas, and we don't just draw from Augustine, and we don't just draw from Bonaventure. We draw from everyone. We draw from uh, Pope Benedict XVI, all the theologians of the church. We draw from everyone. We don't line up behind a particular camp. And the magisterium is the one that has the final say on all things. Um, I mean, even St. Thomas Aquinas, the great St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, did not believe that Mary was immaculately conceived, uh, which I'm going to be back on, I think, December 5th to talk to you guys about the Blessed Virgin Mary and the teachings uh, the church has on her. Uh, but he didn't believe that she was immaculately conceived, uh, which, was, which it wasn't declared dogmatic yet, but it was still a doctrine of the church that we're bound to believe. But he didn't believe so. And so the magisterium, even though the saints um, are great, even though we have great saints and great teachings, the saints have given us beautiful things, all the saints don't always get it right. And in the end, it's the magisterium that kind of has the final say. All right, so it says ESPN. Yes, that has to do with the sports network, okay? So here's an analogy for ESPN and the church and how it works with the magisterium. Imagine two grandmothers. Um, they go to the Suns game, okay, the Phoenix Suns game, which, which I don't know if you really want to go to the Phoenix Suns games right now because I think they've only won one or two games and they're pretty bad, but nevertheless, you want to go to a Suns game, okay, these two grandmas want to go to a Suns game. What are they going to notice? They're going to probably notice, they'll probably know the score of the game by the end of, this, by the, end of the game. Uh, they maybe see the cheerleaders and the Suns dancers. They might know one of the star players. Uh, they might know, you know, what a free throw is and what a three-point game is or a three-point play is, um, they might understand some small parts of the game. Then let's take maybe uh, two high school boys, okay, from Higley or Williamsfield. 
uh, or Perry, one of the schools around here, in their high school, there are players on the team, okay, and they're, and they're varsity players. They're going to go to the game as well. They're going to know all the stuff that the grandmothers know, but they're going to probably know more of the players. They're going to probably know what the plays look like, a pick and roll, and, you know, who's, who's, uh, who's strong in one area and who's strong, who's strong in one, another area. They'll definitely know the end of the score. As young boys, they'll probably notice the Suns dancers. Um, and then, uh, but they're going to they're gonna get more than the grandmothers are going to get. They're going to understand the game a little deeper than just, than two of the, let's just say two of their grandmothers. Then ESPN, but ESPN's also at the game, okay? Again, why would they be at a Suns game? Because they stink. But nevertheless, ESPN's at the game. What do they know? They know everything that the grandmothers know, and they know everything that the high school boys know, and they know everything on top of all of those two kind of combined. They know who's, who's strong on the left side, who's strong on the right side, who can switch when he's dribbling. Uh, they'll, they'll know the stats of the three-point, you know, of all the players, of what, what, how they are from uh, the three-point line. How, what's their percentage from the free-throw line? 71%, which is pretty bad, or a 95% player. Um, they know how many steals each player has, how many assists, blocks. They have it all, and they're the full authority on sports and on that game. So if someone came to them and said, if someone says, I want to know exactly what's going on in the Suns game, who are you going to ask? The grandmothers, the boys, or ESPN? That's kind of the mag that's kind of the analogy of ESPN. The church knows everything and pulls from every source. We've got documents on all the teachings. We've got stuff on all the saints. We know the statistics on all the saints. We know the statistics on certain, uh, like the documents, what, what was read, what, when was it written, how it was written, why it was written, okay? All of these things that ESPN would know about a son's basketball game is exactly how the church understands itself and, and then can relate it to the world. Okay, ESPN. All right. The mystery of the church. Christ, this comes from Lumen Gentium number eight. It says, Christ, the one mediator, established and continually sustains here on earth his holy church, the community of faith, hope, and charity as an entity with visible delineation through which he communicated truth and grace to all. But the society structured with hierarchical organs and the mystical body of Christ are not to be considered as true realities, nor are the visible assembly in the spiritual community, nor the earthly church and the church enriched with heavenly things. Rather, they form one complex reality which, can, which uh, coalesces from the uh, divine and human element. So what is the visible church? All right, so the visible church really is the parish, nuns, priests, bishops, our youth groups, RCIA and adult confirmation, this is the visible church. The church is much more, though. The church is the people of God the Father, the mystical, the mystical body of the Son, and the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Greek word, how we, how we understand what the church is, the church becomes sacramental. Because the, the, the Greek word mysterion, um, which is mystery, so from Greek to Latin, it is mysterium. Um, and sacramentum is what it is in Latin. The church is the visible sign, which is what sacramentum is actually means in, um, and when you get into the sacraments with Father Will and Father Ken, 
The sacraments are the physical or the efficacious sign of God's presence in the world. That's essentially what the church is as well. So we see the church as the visible sign as sacramentum. And then the hidden reality of salvation lies in the mysterium, uh, the hidden reality. So when we look at the, when Christ says in the scriptures to the apostles, you will perform signs greater than these, he's using that mysterium, he's using a form of that Greek, means you're going to perform signs greater than these, which means the sacraments that the church will give us will be greater than even the signs I commit here. You know, the signs, the, the miracles that Christ performed, the sacraments that we have, the eventually, you know, which became the seven sacraments uh, in the church, those are greater signs than the signs that I, than I have, you know, than the signs and the miracles that I am uh, doing for you now. Um, so the church, we see this, we see as the church as this mystery and as this sacrament. And then the invisible church is the church that includes all of her members. Uh, those here on earth, which are the saints militant, the saints suffering in purgatory, and the saints in heaven, the saints triumphant. So we talk about in the creed, visible and invisible. Well, what we see and what we don't see. We can see, you know, part of the invisible church is the church here on earth, but then we don't see a large portion of, this, of the church, uh, which is also uh, purgatory in heaven. Now, I'm not going to get into too, many, uh, too much of that tonight because you guys are going to get the last things next week. And part of the last things is heaven, hell, and purgatory. So the church as a sacrament of communion. The church is the sacrament of salvation because she's both a sign and instrument of God's salvation for humanity. The church is God's instrument to bring men into communion with God and with each other through the grace of the sacraments. Communio, come, commun, the term communion comes from the Greek word koinonia, which uh, in Latin is communio. It's the expression of the central core of the church's mystery. And being in communion means that I adhere to all the teachings of the church. When we receive Holy Eucharist externally and internally, we profess that we are in communion with the church. So the church, again, is the sacrament of communion. Um, and again, being in communion with the church, that's why when you receive Holy Eucharist, you're saying that I am in communion with the church. I adhere to all the teachings of the church uh, in, externally as I come forward to receive, and I believe it internally that I adhere to all the teachings of the church. That's why the Catholic Church says that those that are not in communion with us are not permitted to receive Holy Eucharist at the, because we believe the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. If you're not in communion, then you wouldn't receive. If I went to a Lutheran church with someone and they were giving out their version of communion, okay, I would not receive that communion because I am not in communion with that particular, that particular church. So being so the church again, she's a sign, she's a sacrament, but she also acts as a sacrament of communion. Uh, and it's not something that we're, you know, it's it's unfortunate that we're separate that we have separated brethren, uh, brothers and sisters. Um, but this is what the church teaches, and this is this is where we where we are today. Okay. 
So, let's focus on the four marks of the Catholic Church. Now, we say these four marks in the, um, in the creed. One, the church is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Lumen Gentium number eight says, This is the one church of Christ, which in the creed is professed as one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, which our Savior, after his resurrection, commissioned Peter to shepherd, and him and the other apostles to extend and direct with authority, which he erected for all ages as the pillar and mainstay of the truth, end quote. So this has to, so we see Matthew 16, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. But then if you remember the, the fire, the fire pit, where they're on the beach and they realize it's Jesus out on, the, on the beach. And when, when um, Peter, uh, when Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? feed my sheep, all of that, that, that whole dialogue between Christ and Peter in the Gospel of John, that's what this document, that's what this is specifically talking about. He commissions Peter to be the shepherd. So he gives Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven and earth uh, in Matthew 16, but then in John, and later John, then we also get, in later John, we get him commissioning Peter to be, to be the, the, the head of, of all, the shepherd, all the sheep. Um, and and why, you know, it's, I think we talk about, you know, why does he ask him three times? Uh, in Greek, the term love, there's multiple meanings uh, for love. Uh, there's, there's philos, there's brotherly love, there's eros, there's uh, agape, which is like self-sacrificial self giving love. Eros is like an erotic love. Um, so that's why, because that's why, for us, love has one kind of one meaning. You know, the way you say, maybe I love my wife, and that to say is like the same way as I love pizza, okay? Now, it's like, it's not, it's not the same thing. You better not love your wife as you love pizza, okay? All right? I mean, when I say things on Facebook and I say I love this, I always put like philos or philos love. I, I'll put it in parentheses. And then my friends that speak Greek, particularly priests that I'm friends with on Facebook, are, hey, good job putting the, putting the, uh, the philos, like brotherly love. Like I have a brotherly love for Gilbert. I love the city of Gilbert or the town of Gilbert. So, all right. So, let me shut up and uh, and, and, and get. He said it three times because each love was a different Yeah. So he says, yeah. So uh, not to get off track. So um, he says the first two times Jesus asks him, "Do you love me?" And it's agape. Do you love me self-sacrificially? And Peter responds, "Yes, I love you like a brother." And then, I love you, agape. I love you self. Do you love me, agape? Do you love me self-sacrificially? Yes, I love you like a brother. Then eventually, Peter uh, asks, or then eventually, just the third time, Jesus says, um, do you love me? But it's philos. It's the philos, the brotherly love. That's why Peter like, Lord, you know I love you. Finally, Peter gets it. You know, but Peter, it's kind of, he's thick a little bit. So, um, he doesn't always get it right away. And finally, when he says that the third time, then he says, yes, Lord, I agape you. I love you self-sacrificially. I love you unconditionally. Um, and then that's, and then it kind of moves forward from there. So that's why, that's why that you've got those different versions, those different understandings of, 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 uh, of, the, of the Greek. Okay, so the church is one. What does this mean? It comes from Ephesians 4, 5, where St. Paul says that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. 
One, because of her source. There's the oneness of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even though there are three persons, they're one nature, that's God. The church is one because of her founder, the Word made flesh. Christ reconciled all by his death on the cross. All of the sin, all of the original sin uh, from, that we see in the Old Covenant is all brought to completion and brought together as one under Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. The church is one because of her soul, the Holy Spirit dwelling within those who believe. Only in the Catholic Church is this collection of truths, the one faith that Christ himself taught and still maintains. Unity comes through the profession of one faith from the apostles, the common celebration of divine worship, especially the sacraments, and apostolic session by means of holy orders. So we understand that the, you know, all of this brings that the church is one. There's not, although there's particular dioceses and there's particular, par, and there's other parishes within, all of the churches are still one. So we could, let's say, let's just say uh, for imagination purposes, tomorrow morning we could go to Mass here at 8 o'clock in the morning and hear, one, hear the readings. Then we can get on a, on a magical rocket or plane, and it'll take us to New York, and we'll go to, a, we'll go to Mass at noon, okay, in, or, you know, maybe like 2 o'clock in the afternoon or something, or, you know, let's just say magically noon, because that's, that's more like, we don't, really, we don't usually have 2 o'clock Masses during the weekday, but let's say we're there at noon, okay, after this Mass. Um, the same readings are going to be heard, the same exact readings, There's, okay, then we fly from there to Rome. Okay, and we're going to hear the same readings again, and then we go from there, and we go meet Father Will and the 98 uh, pilgrim, uh, pilgrims in Jerusalem, okay, or where they are, and go to Mass there, you're going to hear the same readings again. The church is holy. Uh, the church is unfailingly holy. Uh, by Christ and through the Trinity are hailed as alone holy. The church, then, is the holy, is known as the holy people of God, and her members are called saints. So the saints militant, the saints suffering, and the saints triumphant. Although the church is holy, her members are not yet perfectly holy. The members are called to universal holiness by the Father himself, and the members are called to the sacramental life. So the church herself is holy because Jesus Christ is holy. Um, we are the holy people of God, but we're not yet perfectly holy. There are sinners. We are sinners. I go to confession and confess the same things over and over again, okay? Um, and it's the mercy of God that only allows me to do that. Um, but we're not perfectly holy. So there's, there's people going to make mistakes. There's going to be things that are said that, will, uh, that aren't said perfectly and aren't said correctly. Um, but the church still remains holy because of her founder. Uh, Lumen Gentium 41 says, The classes and duties of life are many, but holiness is still one. The church is Catholic. The term Catholic actually derives from the Greek word katholikos, which actually means according to the whole. Um, the other term usually is universal. Um, the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her. Wherever, and the first person to use the term Catholicos was actually Ignatius of Antioch in his letter to the Sumerians. 
And he says, quote, wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the multitude of the people also be, even as wherever Christ is, there is the Catholic Church, end quote. Ignatius of Antioch lived in the early first century. Uh, he writes seven letters to these different communities that he's traveling from Antioch to Rome. He's being sent to Rome to be martyred for the faith. And he writes these letters, these, they're small letters to these small kind of Mediterranean communities. Uh, and one of them is the Sumerians, and that's where he particularly talks. That's the, and then he goes, the quote even goes in the letter, he talks about how the bishop is present within the church. So soon when you see the bishop, that's also where the Catholic Church remains, is with the bishop. So it's Christ is with the church, but also the bishop also is a sign uh, of, of the church and of, of Catholicism. And what does it mean universal? What do they mean Catholic universal? Well, at the known time in the first century, where the known world was at the time, that's where the, the Christian church, the Catholic church had spread. So out to India, um, we believe as far as India, uh, in, even into Spain, in, into Europe. Um, some believe that even St. James made it all the way to uh, what we know as like Great Britain. He made it even that far um, early on. So imagine where, excuse me, imagine where the, uh, where, where like, the, you know, where Jerusalem is and spreading as far as India to the east and even into Spain and, and Great Britain in the west. The church has been sent out by Christ on a mission to the whole human race. That's a part of the church as Catholic. He says, Jesus doesn't say, oh, hang around Jerusalem. Just chill out in this area. We'll be all good. No, no, no. They go out to the known world. St. Thomas the Apostle makes it all the way to India, as I said. And St. James makes it all the way to, uh, for sure, Spain, but maybe even into Britain. And then each particular church is fully Catholic through their communion with Rome. Each particular church is fully Catholic through their communion with Rome. So each particular church, the eparchy of the diocese, is Catholic with their because we're in communion with Rome, um, which is unfortunate. We're separated with also with the Orthodox. So like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, they are not under the umbrella or in communion with Rome. Uh, because of some now, really, if you look at it, those everything's kind of been theologically figured out per se. To, to say it simply, uh, there just seems to be some logistics and some things that we need to figure out with the Orthodox. Um, but unfortunately, they're still technically not in communion with us. Uh, but like our diocese in Tucson and Gallup and LA, everyone's connected to Rome. And then the church is also apostolic because she's built on the foundation of the apostles with Peter as the head. The church continues to teach through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, continue to be taught, sanctified, and ruled by the apostles' successors, the bishops. So our own Bishop Olmsted, which you'll see later, as I have a picture of him, he is a successor of the apostles. He's a modern-day modern apostle. Um, and so the apostles then ordained uh, men that, that ordained other men, and, as, and it's just that's what we have, apostolic succession. From there on, it just, it just grew and grew. 
Um, gosh, I wish I wish I should have brought that picture. We have a church. Uh, we have a, not church. Listen to me. We have a picture of all the popes from Peter to Francis. I think it's in the office somewhere. I've got one in my house, but it's not an updated one. And it's got all 265 popes together. And it really shows you the beauty of apostolic succession. And again, which apostolic succession is the handing on of apostolic preaching and authority from the apostles to their successors, the bishops, which is a continuous line through the laying on of hands as a permanent office in the church. So again, the, the bishop would be the one that permanently loves the laying on of hands. So the apostles would then ordain bishops, and as the, group, as the church grew, you had more bishops, and then eventually you had bishops also ordaining priests, uh, and, and it just continued to grow. So that's where the laying on of hands, and we still see that today in, in, in holy orders. Um, when you guys learn about the sacrament of holy orders, Father will talk about, I think Father Will's doing that one with you, or one of the priests is doing it. Talk about when he was ordained, what the bishop did, actually the laying on of hands and what the words that were said. Um, going back to the early first centuries. Um, okay. All right, so infallibility. Let's talk. Now, this is the one where this is the topic that everyone gets, you know, kind of twisted over, upset about. What's the church talking about? You know, the Pope thinks he's this perfect dude hanging out in Rome. That does, he can't do anything wrong. False. Okay? That's not what infallibility is. From Lumen Gentium itself, it says this, quote, Although the individual bishops do not enjoy the prerogative of infallibility, they nevertheless proclaim Christ's doctrine infallibility whenever even though dispersed through the world, but still maintain the bond of community among themselves and with the successor of Peter and authentically teaching matters of faith and morals, they are in agreement on one position as definitely, as definitely to be held. Definitively, excuse me, not definitely, definitively to be held. This is even more clearly verified when gathered together in an ecumenical council. They are teachers and judges of faith and morals for the universal church whose definitions must be adhered to with the submission of faith. Comes from Lumen Gentium 25. Because of the hierarchical structure, which you'll see out, uh, oh, I forgot to give Lita that second handout, okay? She'll give you the handout next week. Um, the church is not a philosophical debating society, nor is it a democratic policy, but body grounded in revelation. There's a content and structure that must be maintained over the centuries. So what fallibility is not? Infallibility is not the Pope does not know everything. The Pope cannot predict the future. The Pope is not immune from making bad practical judgments. And the Pope is not above criticism or incapable of sin. He is not personally infallible. But the office is personally infallible. It means that he knows who Jesus is. Therefore, when in his authority, when teaching on faith and morals, he does not say anything in error. The gift of infallibility flows from God's character because he loves us and does not allow error when faith and morals are then proclaimed. When is the church fallible, and why is the church fallible? 
The Pope is the head of the College of Bishops, enjoy the, and which enjoy this infallibility in the virtue of his office when his supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful doctrines pertaining to faith and morals. They together are a living voice of authority. Second, the infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of bishops when, together with the pope, they exercise the supreme teaching office, such as an ecumenical council. The last ecumenical council the church has had was the Second Vatican Council, where this document, Lumen Gentium, comes from, and it was held from 1962 to 1965. Uh, Sixteen total documents came out of it, this being one, Lumen Gentium is one of the four of the do major dogmatic constitutions. And then in uh, paragraph 891 of the Catechism, it says, when the church, through its supreme magisterium, proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely, uh, divinely revealed, and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. Now, why is the church infallible? The church is infallible because she's faithful. There's a faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Infallibility is Christocentric, which means its origin and focus is on Jesus Christ, which is one of the major points of Lumen Gentium. talks about the Christocentricity of Jesus Christ, that all things must come and flow from Christ. Everything must come and flow from Jesus Christ. Um, the church does not have the authority over sacred scripture because she is not its author. Its author is Christ. She can interpret it and draw from its inner meanings, but she can never correct it. She can, she can add to it, but never subtract from it. And when something is added, it's added from within organically as a tree adds fruit. So the teachings of the church People will say, well, couldn't have Jesus just given us everything in one shot, everything we have today? Yeah, he could have. But he doesn't allow it to do, he doesn't allow the, the church to grow like that. The church grows organically like a seed into a tree and it grows over the centuries through the magisterium, through the authority of the church that the, that the church has uh, with the popes and the bishops acting together. So, putting the Bible together in the 4th century. The teach, all the different teachings of the sacraments came from the scriptures, but then was formulated theologically over time. Three, I mean, the count, the, our Nicene Creed, the creed that we say at Mass, okay? Um, then, you know, the, the, that comes from the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople, 325 to 381. The church was challenged on what she believed. So the church came up, and you know, through or, through this organic development of teaching, this you know how to answer what it was, be, was what it was being challenged on. So starting in 325 with the Council of Nicaea, and then eventually ending in 381 with the Council of Constantinople. During those years, the church developed through its theologians, through the popes, through the bishops working together as the magisterium developed our creed that we still have today. I mean, technically that creed is the, non, the Nicaea Constantinople Creed, but it's a little long to say, so we just call it the Nicene Creed. Um, but that's how the church develops. A great book, if, you want, if you're interested, is the, um, now I can't think of the title of it, 
uh, it's by Carl Adam. Oh gosh, what's the name of it now? It's going to drive me crazy. If anyone Google's a book, call. If you Google, someone has a phone. Google Carl Adam and Catholic Church, and then let me know what book. I can't think of the name of the book, but I read it in grad school. It's a fantastic book, and it shows organically how the church develops from Christ and the apostles into what we have today. It was written in three. It was written in like 1925. Carl Adam, Father Carl Adam, was a, a German priest. Um, a g- fantastic book. Um, I know at least seven or eight people that read that book then converted to Catholicism. They were all Protestants. Uh, Scott Hahn was one of them. You've heard Lita talk about him. I talk about him. He was one of my professors. That book had a major impact on him. Spirit of Catholicism. Thank you very much. The Spirit of Catholicism by Carl Adam. It's awesome. Now, as a Catholic growing up as a, as a cradle Catholic and as one that was baptized Catholic as a child, I'm reading this in grad school. The whole time I'm in the library reading this thing, I could not, first of all, I couldn't put it down because it's freaking awesome. Okay, this book is just so good. The whole time I'm reading, I'm like pumping my fist in the GP2 library the whole time I'm reading it. Because he just, I mean, there's so many awesome points that Carl Adam talks about. I think he probably read Blessed Cardinal Newman, uh, who was a convert to Catholicism from the Anglican Church uh, in England. And And when you read the Second Vatican Council, a lot of those council fathers that were there uh, which included John Paul II. He was there as a cardinal, and uh, Pope Benedict XVI was at Vatican II as a, uh, a as a periti, who was like a like a, uh, like a scholar uh, that writes a lot of the documents for the cardinals. They were both there. Um, the, you know, I think I would imagine some of those councils' father probably read Carl Adam at, at some point because the books, it, the stuff, the stuff you see in Vatican II is the stuff that you see in Carl Adam's book. And what you see from from Newman as well, from Blessed Cardinal Newman. Now, those are just my thoughts. Those, that's not what the church teaches, but from what my studies, that's that's something. That's what I see. Okay, so a great, but but the reason I brought that book up is because it shows the beauty of how the church developed organically, uh, and that was the first time in all my years as a Catholic when I started studying the faith. The, at, at the graduate level is when I really understood the organic growth of the church. Okay, so now the baseball analogy is kind of a great way to use this analogy for infallibility. Okay, so umpires are an indispensable flow to the game. Without umpires, the game would quickly dissolve into bickering over calls. Was he safe? Was he out? Fair or foul? The umpire who is present to the game and is a living voice of authority, can make a decisive decision. He allows the flow of the game to go on. The Pope, in the same sense, is a living voice of authority. Without his voice, uncertainties and schisms would happen all the time because as humans, we are foolish and fallen. Now, of course, that analogy works um, pre-replay. Okay, which I think is destroying the game. Okay, if I go down this tangent, then we're going to go down a deep, deep rabbit hole. Because during the during the World Series, and I'm a huge baseball fan, I can't stand that replay. It's ridiculous. Certain calls, yes, but this thing about you know home runs is one thing. The bases, I just yeah. Before you know, they're going to start using it on on balls and strikes. So, but that's kind of the understanding of infallibility. Does anyone have any questions? about infallibility or about anything I've talked about so far?
Okay. All right. So I'm going to continue. Um, all right. So trusting the church on issues we don't fully understand. Or what about trusting a bad shepherd? Lumen Gentium number 37 says this, the laity should, as all Christians, promptly accept in Christian obedience decisions of their spiritual shepherds since they are representatives of Christ as well as teachers and rulers in the church. Let them follow the example of Christ who by his obedience, even unto death, opened to all men the blessed way of the liberty of the children of God. Nor should they omit to pray for those placed over them for they keep watch as having to render an account of their souls, so that they may do this with joy and not grief, end quote. When we encounter issues we don't fully understand or trying to trust a bad shepherd, we should remember a few things. First, we should remember the wisdom of the church. The church has been doing such things for nearly 2,000 years. Although it's hard, we must trust that God is still in control and that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church. Um, you know, I, there's so many. I have friends that are like this, that are doom and gloomers, okay? Everything is doom and gloom. Oh, this is happening in the church. Oh, this is happening in the church, okay? The church has gone through bad times in the past. The church has gone through times where we thought we were going to be uh, annihilated, okay? Look up the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, or look up the Battle of Vienna in 1638. Google those. Look those up. I, I talked about them on my blog before. Okay? We're, yes, we're faced with great evils in today's world. But it's not like the church hasn't faced these great evils in the past. Um, I think we see them more. I think, I think us as 21st century, 2016, almost 2017, Americans and citizens of the world, we see everything very quickly because of these stinking things. Cell phones, tab, I mean, everything comes in so quickly. Twitter, I mean, something happens in, 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 in Bangladesh and within, within two minutes it's on Twitter. People take pictures of it and they're tweeting it out. And we see news rapidly. So I think we have to remember that there's always been the wisdom of church. The church has endured hard times. She will continue to endure hard times, but she's been there before. Second, that we are obedient when teachings are taught on faith and morals. Suggesting, the, suggesting these points on economics or global warming can be made by the pope or a bishop. That's a good point, like the understanding of global warming, uh, like what Pope Benedict has said. A lot of times it's his opinion, but the lay faithful are not obligated to follow since it does not have to do with faith and morals. Francis? Yeah, I think, and I could be wrong, somebody will know whether, I'm, whether what I'm saying is right or not, but he had made a comment on the plane about um, the wall, the, this is not political, but no, I understand. Yeah. you know where I'm going with this? Yeah. Well, the, like, it, you know, that it wasn't right to, to have a wall, and then just like a day or two later, um, somebody on the internet pointed out that there was a complete wall around the Vatican. And, and so is this kind of what you mean by, you know, he was just making a statement. Well, yeah, so. And I'm not saying he was wrong, but right. I'm saying then, then you have somebody jump 
on the bandwagon and say, well, there's a wall around the Vatican. We need to take that down. Yeah, I can answer that more at the, uh, during the Q&A. Okay. But it's, it's more, it's more of, uh, yeah, let me just answer that during the Q&A because I, it's kind of, yeah, we can go down that tangent. The, 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 because the, he, yeah, he does, well, all right, yeah. Let me, ju let me just do it during the Q&A. Um, okay, so the second, the third thing is that truth does not depend on bad vessels. Sometimes we will encounter bad shepherds, we'll encounter bad shepherds, but does not mean they cannot speak the truth. The church has, has had its fair share of corrupt popes, and during that time, no doctrine was ever changed. Nothing was ever changed. Okay, there was, there was a period where we had one corrupt pope after another. They were bad dudes, okay, real bad dudes. But the beauty of it was that God was still in control. The Holy Spirit was still in control. No doctrine ever changed. If there was a doctrine, if there was a time where doctrine could have changed for the worst, it would have been during that time, during a time of corrupt, bad popes, okay, and bad cardinals and bad bishops. The Arian heresy, going back to the fourth century, it was a bishop. Arian was a bishop. He was a bishop of the church. Nestorius, the Nestorian heresy, which you've heard these terms a little bit in RCIA. I'll talk about them again um, when I talk about Mary. Um, again, Nestorius was a bishop. He was a bishop of Constantinople. So there's times where doctrine could have been changed or could have been, you know, faltered a little bit, and it still doesn't because um, even though we see bad vessels, uh, again, God's still in control. The fourth is dif difficulty to bear. There's some teachings of the church that could be hard for us to bear, but we must accept them in obedience and humility. It's not about what I want. But what does the Lord want? Um, we got to ask ourselves that question when we think about teachings that are hard. Well, I want this and I want that, especially as arrogant, prideful Americans. We all think we all got it all figured out. Okay. Um, you know, I want this and this is the way I want it. And if, I, if the church doesn't give this to me, I'm leaving. Okay. Because I've run into plenty of people like that and working for the church. Okay. It's unfortunate, but they, I have. Um, Christ established that only men can be ordained to the priesthood because they represent Christ, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Uh, people that seek female priests are only about themselves and not about the teachings of Christ. Again, Francis had to answer this question. It was kind of providential. This was a, one example of something that came up. The understanding of female priests. Um, now, when the priests talk about, talk about holy orders, this will come up. If you have a question about it, it's a good time. You can ask me at the end, too, uh, when we do the Q&A. But, um, but the priest will explain this and explain this teaching. Um, and again, what's it about? Is it, you know, when I see these women that want to be priests, it's about them. That's what it's about. Everything, it's always about them. Um, you know, people that, uh, and not just women, but men that say, oh, we should ordain women. Everybody else is doing it. Well, doesn't necessarily make it right either, because every, you know, all these other all these other faith communities are doing it. It's what is it about? Is it about you or is it about Jesus? And when it comes to those hard teachings, that's one of the key things we have to ask ourselves: Who is it about? Because a lot of times it's always pointing to numero uno. And then lastly, in the end, we must be people of prayer. Stay steadfast in the truth, for the truth is always will always prevail. Um, if you don't understand something, pray about it. If you don't understand, ask questions about it. But ask, as Father Will said in his homily last night, 
Ask honest questions. Okay, or I went to mass last night for the Latin mass. Ask an honest question. Ask an honest question that you want answered. Don't go up to them afterwards and say, well, why doesn't the church, you know, why doesn't the church do this? Why does the church do that? that? You're not looking for an honest answer. If you know, um, you know, a lot of the moral teachings of the church, um, you know, abortion, euthanasia, same-sex marriage, these are things that are going to come up this year um, that we might have, we might believe one thing right now, but, you know, you got to ask, why does the church teach what she teaches on these subjects? And ask the honest question. Don't ask with your arms folded. Don't ask huffing and, muff, huffing and puffing and being upset and angry over it. But ask the honest question. And, you know, what's it about? Is it about me or is it about Christ? Okay. The hierarchical structure of the church is focused. Um, and this is something I, I really like the hierarchy of the church. And it's something that's quite, quite beautiful in and of itself. As a kingdom needs a certain organization... Um, if, the, uh, if the kingdom doesn't have a certain organization, the whole thing falls apart. The kingdom of God on earth was established by Christ to endure until the end of time. So Jesus Christ promised to guide and protect her. The New Testament writings speak of bishops, priests, and deacons. The hierarchy of the church was developed while the twelve were still alive. The bishops of the church, as successors of the apostles, with the pope as their head, form a single college. They continue to lead the church in an unbroken chain that leads back to the 12, a reality that we call, we've talked about this already, apostolic succession. Although there is a true equality of dignity among the faithful and their contributions to the church's mission, the church is organized in a governing structure of hierarchical authority, that is to say, certain members of the church because of the graces available through their ordained roles, possess greater authority in the church than others. We must be careful not to think of the visible society of the church on earth in terms of a democracy. The church is instituted by Christ, and unlike a democracy, the power of the church comes from Christ, not from the people. The baptized share in Christ's priestly, prophetic, and kingly mission but it is Christ himself who is the source of the church's life and ministry. So, so three of those, and we're actually doing a study right now on Thursday nights, uh, Bishop Barron's uh, Priest, Prophet, and King. Three Old Testament roles, priests, prophets, and kings. Christ fulfills all three of them perfectly, and then through our baptism, we also share in those roles as well. It is through the sacrament of holy orders that the ministerial authority of Christ, which he imparted to the apostles, is passed down to the bishops, priests, and deacons of the church. The clergy make up the church, make up the church's hierarchy, which comes from the Greek word hierarchia, which means a uh, meaning sacred order, which derives its authority from Christ himself. It is Christ who established the church's hierarchical structure. And he commanded the apostles and their successors to exercise this authority in imitation of his own spirit of service. This is reflected in one of the Pope's titles. One of the Pope's titles is the servant of the servants of God. And from Luke 22, 25 through 7, it says, Jesus said to the apostles, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over their people 
and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. I am, I am among you as the one who serves. So remember we talked about servant leadership in the beginning? That's the hierarchical structure. There's a servant leadership to it. That's what Christ is talking about here in Luke. We see it when Jesus washes the apostles' feet. He's serving them. That's what the bishops, priests, and deacons do for us. They serve us. And the Pope's main title is the servant of the servants of God. The hierarchy, the hierarchy of the church is therefore different from any other hierarchical structure, such as a government or corporation, for it is defined by the, uh, the authority rather, but rather, not, a, not defined by authority, for, well, excuse me, it is defined by authority, but rather by service performed out of love. So there's an authority to this hierarchical structure, but in within the authority, there's service being performed out of love. The task of those who are higher is to serve those who are lower and not the other way around. We can see this in, this, uh, we can see this in a reflection of God's own love for although God is infinitely greater than any of his creatures, he demonstrates his greatness by lifting us up and offering up his own life, his own, his own divine life of grace. And then uh, paragraph uh, 8, I actually should say 879, not 891. Um, it's just, uh, 879 says, The sacramental ministry in the church, then, is a service exercised in the name of Christ. It has a personal character and a collegial form. This is evidenced by the bonds between the Episcopal College and its head, the successor of St. Peter, and in the relationship between the bishop's pastoral responsibilities for its particular church and the common solitude of the Episcopal College for the Universal Church. Okay, so a lot of that is kind of, a lot of that's theolo theolo theological language. Uh, in regards to the hierarchy of the church. But the hierarchy serves. There's servant leadership within the hierarchy. There's authority within the hierarchy, which receives its authority from Christ, but everything's done out of love. So bishops serve us. The priests serve us. The deacons serve us. I mean, they're there to serve us. Um, you know, and it's established by Christ, who established the apostles and then established... Um, and then move, you know. And then, as they as they had their successors, it was developed and apostolic succession developed. So, um, so then um, uh, the idea, um, you know, uh, the the idea of the the, the hierarchy uh, really finds its roots in in. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I came in, when uh, Peter is established as the prime minister, as the head of the apostles. Remember, in the, 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 uh, you had King David and Solomon had their, their 12 men that they would gather around them, that they chose to be kind of their, their main support. Well, the same, the same way with Jesus Christ. And the hierarchy develops out of there. Okay, so let's just look through. So, um, okay, I just read 879. So, um, all right, so let me just go through this real quick with you guys. Um, so the Pope, uh, in the papacy, we've got Pope Francis. He's the successor of St. Peter. He's the Bishop of Rome, which means he's the head of the Diocese of Rome. He's the Supreme Pontiff of the Catholic Church. 
The, the Pope exercises a primacy of authority as vicar of Christ and shepherd of the whole church. He receives the divine assistance promised by Christ. So he's technically known as the bishop of, I mean, really the bishop of Rome. Now, even though there's other bishops under him that do the work within the diocese of Rome, he's technically still the bishop of Rome. Um, and his authority, again, and that's something, too, that's developed over the years, the authority of the pope, this understanding, this authority that he has over the universal church. Did St. Peter... Cletus, Linus, Clemens, all of those early popes, did they have the understanding that Francis does? I would say probably not, because it didn't, the, the, the theology of the authority hadn't really fully developed as we have it today. Did they understand, I mean, they really understand who they were speaking to in some sense, but, and again, this is something you can argue back and forth, and theologians do. But did Peter have the understanding that as, as Francis has today? A cardinal. These are archbishops who have been consecrated by a pope to serve as a special advisor to the papacy. Some remain at the helm of their archdiocese, while others are appointed to important administrative positions at the Vatican. One important duty of a cardinal is, a func is the function as a papal elector. So the cardinals, when the new pope comes from the cardinals, comes out of the cardinals. And this is uh, a Cardinal Robert Serra. He's the head of the congregation for the liturgy in Rome today. The term bishop is a consecrated successor to the apostles, usually given charge of the pastoral and catechetical care of a particular jurisdiction or a diocese or an archdiocese Diocese and archdiocese just have to do with the size of the diocese. Um, um, he is called to teach, sanctify, and govern the faithful of his own diocese. And we talked about those three points as the, at the beginning of this teaching. And it's also to work together in caring for the worldwide church. The term bishop comes from the Greek term episcopus, or overseer. The bishops of the church each hold the fullness of the sacrament of holy orders, for they receive the full authority that Christ gave to the twelve. A cathedral is the official church of the local bishop. It is the seat of his authority and is usually in the city from which the diocese takes its name. So Diocese of Phoenix, Diocese of Tucson, Diocese of Gallup. Okay, Gallup's one of the other dioceses that's east of us. Um, Okay, um, and the, the word cathedra or cathedral comes from the word cathedra, uh, which means uh, it's like a chair. Um, the word comes from the Greek term that means a seat of honor. In the scriptures, Jesus used this term only once, but it is very important. He says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. He says cathedra musios. So to practice and observe whatever they tell you. The cathedra is a seat where wise men teach who gave religious and moral authority. The seat is a place of honor. And Jesus says to the apostles that you will sit on thrones for judgment. So like when Jesus sat, when Jesus teaches, like with the Beatitude, like when we see the, like, um, the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7, more than likely Jesus wasn't standing when he taught. He probably was sitting. Was he sitting on a chair? probably not on a hill, 
but he was sitting somehow because that was the sitting was the official way you would teach when you were like the judges in the Old Testament when they would judge guess where they were sitting on a seat okay like we think of our judges today they're usually sitting when they make those calls uh, when the popes specifically teach when you watch a papal mass or something that goes on in Rome usually they're when they make some kind of official teaching they're usually sitting um, so you see, and, and then in the cathedral, and a lot, you guys are all, well, actually, most of you will go to the cathedral for different rites this year. There's a particular seat in the cathedral that only the bishop can sit in. The rector of the di the rector can't sit in it, but only the bishop can sit in. It usually has his seal on it, um, and he only sits there because that's the that's his primary chair uh, that he only that's he that's permitted for him and, and given to him. And then, Father, we're, okay, so here we got priests, okay, all right, yes, this, okay, this picture, okay, this was a meme I did, okay, so that was Father Will a couple years ago when he had his long beard, okay, so when your boss has a beard like this, shaving daily is always optional, uh, which is still the case, so I don't have to shave every day, it's kind of nice. Okay, so the, 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 the priest is of the tribe of Levi. In the New Testament, an abbreviation of the Greek, presbyterios, or elder. A member of the order of presbyters, this baptized and confirmed male is ordained to be a co-worker with his bishop, to preside at public liturgies in his stead, and otherwise to assist the bishop in priestly service to the people of God. Through the sacrament of holy orders, both bishops and priests are giving a ministerial participation in the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which empowers them to act in persona, Christi, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. And when you guys talk about the sacraments, the priest will talk about that a little bit more. A parish is a, is a defined territorial district within a diocese with its own church and congregation, which is placed in the sacramental care of a priest. The pastor is the head priest in the overall direction of the parish, the parochial vicar is the priest who assists the pastor in the direction of the parish. When the pastor is away, the parochial vicar is usually in charge. So we have two parochial vicars. We have Father Ken, okay, a.k.a. I think I look like Bruce Willis, okay, okay, who came in and disrupted class, okay. And then we have Father Ashaya, okay, as I call him, the Nigerian prince. So um, those are our parochial vicars. Father Will is in Jerusalem on pilgrimage. Who's in charge? Those two guys. That's who's in charge. I don't know who's, who's more in charge than the other, but uh, they're probably equally in charge. But they're the ones that are in charge while Father Will is gone. Then, uh, then we have the lastly, we have deacon. A deacon is a man who is ordained to assist the mission of the church. Deacons are not ordained for priestly ministry. Rather, they are ordained for the ministry of service. In Greek, the dikonia. Uh, um, there's two types of deacons. There's a transitional deacon, men who are preparing for the ordination to the priesthood, and then there's permanent deacons, other men, including married men, who may be called to serve. We just ordained a bishop, well, not we just ordained, but Bishop Olmsted just ordained five new permanent deacons two days ago on Saturday uh, at the cathedral. So this is actually Deacon Daniel Cruz. He's a transitional deacon. He's one of our seminarians. He uh, will be ordained this year as a priest. So Father Will, you can ask him when, when whoever comes in for holy orders, you can ask them. Um, Father Will's got some stories uh, when he was deacon as well 
um, that he can share with you as well. And then lastly, the Roman Curia. The Roman Curia is the administrative or governing body of the church, which assists the pope in his role as pastor of the universal church. While the pope has primary, primary authority over the church, it is not possible for him to administer his authority in every detail. For this reason, the popes have traditionally created various offices or ministries to assist them in this responsibility. At present, the Roman Curia consists of the Secretary of State, which is the political and diplomatic affairs of the Catholic Church, when they meet, uh, like when uh, presidents, uh, people of state from other governments come in, that is who, who usually handles that. There's nine different congregations, and all of those are on your, I think I've got all of those listed on there. Uh, I mean, there's Doctrine of Faith, Oriental Churches, which is the East, Divine Worship, Causes of Saints, Bishop Evangelization, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, um, about the saints, Catholic education, different pontifical councils as well, on the laity, Christian unity, migrants and migrant people, uh, pastoral care, social communications, and such.